0: If you haven't been here for the past uh, five weeks, we've been um, in the book of Romans and Pastor Brooks has been preaching and we're going to be doing, it's 12 weeks, so we're about, about the midway point. And so if, if you haven't been here or maybe you've missed some, I wanted to do a, a short um, uh, recap of what, what we've been going through so far. So um, um, the letter to Rome was written by the Apostle Paul and, and Rome was known as one of the most powerful empires in history. Uh, arguably the most powerful. and Not the largest, but the most powerful. And and it was also known for its most uh, influential empires in history as well, from government to art to language to trade, financial success, its armies, also the cultural diversity, the the religions, the hundreds of gods that were worshipped there. And and the fact that the good news of Jesus and Christianity took hold uh, itself is is among um, God's work. It's only, only from God. And a pastor um, and writer of the Message Translation, uh, Eugene Peterson, I wanted to read a quote from him that he talks about the, the book of Romans in this way. The event that split history into before and after and changed the world took place about 30 years before Paul wrote this letter. The event, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, took place in a remote corner of the extensive Roman Empire, the province of Judea in Palestine. And hardly anyone noticed. Certainly no one in busy and powerful Rome. And when this letter arrived in Rome, hardly anyone read it. Certainly no one of influence. There was much more to read in Rome, like imperial decrees, um, exquisite poetry, finely crafted moral philosophy, And much of it was this world-class literature. And yet, in no time at all, as such things go, this letter left all those other writings in the dust. Paul's letter to the Romans has had a far larger impact on its readers than the volumes of all of those Roman writers put together. I just love that. What a powerful statement about the letter to Rome. And while I know this is only one man's writing, you can see how this letter in Rome has impacted the world. And so let's recap and look back here through the last couple of weeks. During the first week of the study of Romans, Pastor Brooks preached through Romans chapter one, verses one through 17, and he talked about the importance of the letter and its impact on Christianity as a whole. And in the first week's sermon, we learned that Christians are to be people of humility, servanthood, and that as followers of Jesus, we should identify to the world as servants of Christ. And then it came along week two. We looked at Romans chapter one verses 18 through chapter 2, verses 1. And we learned about God's judgment. God one day will judge our sin with punishment, but we also learned that his judgment will begin here on our time on earth. And you might be saying, well, what do you mean? And if, if you learn the truth about Jesus and yet you continue to follow in your way of sin, God won't strike you down with a lightning bolt like Pastor Brooks had said then. <clears throat> God will leave you in your sin until the day of judgment. God will allow you to live the way you see fit, even though through faith in Jesus you'd be granted eternal life. And I've heard the saying before of how, how, well, how can this loving God send people to hell? I love talking to uh, unbelievers, friends, family about this question <clears throat> because it's a common one used. I wasn't always a believer, and I didn't become a believer until I was 25 years old. And, and in that time before then, that was one of the questions I used. Well, how can this loving God allow these things? Well, How can a loving God send people to hell? And the interesting thing is that hell is a consequence of sin because God doesn't want us living in sin or going to hell. God made a way for us to choose him over our sin. God doesn't send us or send people to hell. Us, ourselves, in our free will, we choose to go to hell by refusing God and his path for salvation. In week three, we went through two chapters in Romans, chapters two and three, and we learned about the law of Moses and how it was designed for us to see our sinful nature and realize that we needed God for salvation, not laws, rules, religious traditions. That by faith alone is the only path to salvation. And it's because of God's loving grace that we can be saved. In chapter 4, Pastor Brooks showed us how Paul masterfully writes that justification comes from faith. Paul writes that faith has always the path to salvation. And he does this by explaining that the patriarch of our faith, Abraham, was saved by his faith. Not because he was this awesome rule follower and had these skills to follow rules. Faith in something will cause you to put your trust in whatever your faith is in. And that means you'll obey and you'll conform to it. That's what faith does. Faith in Jesus should be the same. Faith in Jesus is the only way for the salvation. Amen? So last week we come to week five, and um, we covered the origin of sin and how it started with Abraham in the garden, and how in its simplest form sin is explained by disobedience. Right, Adam disobeyed God, and so ever since then sin has been passed down from generation to generation to generation through sinful nature. Sin is in our human nature, and by our nature we disobey. Now, I ask, like, in your everyday life, how many people, and this is not a rhetorical question, I want to see some hands, how many people here um, are rule followers? Just show your hands. Who, who, who here is a rule follower in your daily life? Work? Anything like that? Okay, a few. Awesome. Yeah, my wife raised her hand. That's funny. Okay. <laughs> who, who of us here, well, it's funny because it's true, so who of us here now are the ones who are rule breakers? Like, we, we disobey, we don't like the rules. Yeah, I'll, I'll raise my hand. That's fine. Yeah. So, it's this interesting thing in our household. Um because, you know, we see rules, and my wife will be like, yep, well, these are the rules. Well, we have to do this. And I'm like, eh, I mean, is it really a rule? Like, what's going to happen if I break that? Like, seriously? And so I fight this, this urge, this natural desire of sin to disobey all the time. In chapter 5, Brooks explained how sin came through Adam, Adam's disobedience and that the grace of God was given for salvation through Jesus because his faith drove his obedience to God. Sin is the result of disobedience, and obedience is the result of faith in Jesus. All of salvation is a result of a loving God's grace. It's God's grace. And because of sin, God's grace is that much more beautiful and brings us now into chapter 6, which we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bible with you or a device or something, um, I'm actually going to read all 23 verses um, of chapter 6 this morning, because I think they are beautifully done by Paul, so... It begins, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished. So that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ has been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For in the light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God. And all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace. And what then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to that one you obey. Either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God That although you used to be slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. And having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. And I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. You're just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to moral impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from allegiance to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? From the end of those things is death. But now, since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord, amen. That's a mouthful. We've learned... Many things about salvation and justification in these last couple of weeks, and now starting here in chapter six and the next couple of weeks, um, chapters seven and eight, we'll see that these chapters um, they focus on sanctification and what it looks like. Now, justification, which we've learned about this past couple of weeks, is becoming um, justified in God's sight because of Jesus. It takes place when we, are, we put our faith in Jesus and we make him Lord of our life. Salvation is then granted to us. Now there is the matter of sanctification, which in the simplest term means to become like Christ. And some scripture to show this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with the unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul wrote that. And in Ephesians four fifteen, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. And finally, later we'll see in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 29, for those Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. The firstborn of many brothers. As you can see, the process of sanctification is the process of becoming like Christ. It's the ongoing, growing transformation in our lives and in our hearts that's done by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not done by our own will. Sanctification is also the process of building the relationship with God. It begins upon conversion when we are set apart and then it leads to righteousness as righteousness is the positive result of our relationship with God. If you are surrendered to God, if you have put your faith in him and if he is Lord of your life, then you will become transformed into the likeness of Jesus. There's no way to argue that. And I dare say that if you are not becoming more and more like Christ each day, conforming to him, then, then are you following him? Because to be a follower of someone means that you become like them. You see what they do. You imitate them. You, you'll, you'll listen to their words and what they say. You'll obey what they say. And it's not easy. I'm not saying that at all. But it's made possible because of God's gift of the Holy Spirit. And I want to look back in through verses 1 through 5 and, uh, of chapter 6 and, and just read them one more time and then, and then go through them with you. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his, de- of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You see, for sin to be eliminated, there had to be this perfect sacrifice, this unblemished, this sinless sacrifice to get rid of sin once and for all. And the only way for this to happen was for God to send his son to be the sacrifice. Because us as humans or animals that were done before could never meet the requirements we couldn't, because there's this holy God and we are not holy. But for Jesus to get rid of sin, once and for all, he had to die. His death is how we can be justified. Then Jesus rises three days later, back to life, anew. And now looking at the five verses we just talked about, I just read, it talks about baptism in in a more depth than this usual Sunday morning, which is a good thing of the become a Christian and get baptized, which is, is, yes, what you should do. But let's talk about baptism for a second. Is baptism a requirement for salvation? No, it's not at all. But what we're talking about here is sanctification, which is becoming like Christ. So I would argue and say to you that water baptism is necessary for sanctification. Jesus himself was baptized to show everyone that it is right to do. We are to be water baptized for a few reasons. It's an outward expression of an inward process it publicly announces to everyone that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It is a symbol of your repentance and faith in Jesus. It is this symbol of cleansing from sin, being your old past sinful life, being washed away. You know, I mean, and how, like, how many of you in here are clean freaks like me? And like, like I'm a clean freak. I mean, I'll shower or bathe at least once a week. That's the standard. <laughs> Sometimes soap is involved, but Lastly, baptism, it's part of becoming like Christ because he himself was water-baptized. If we look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, it says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus answered, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him to be baptized. Do you notice there how Jesus also says this is the way to fulfill all righteousness? And lastly, before we come to faith in Christ, we are lawless sinners destined for eternal separation from God. We live in this manner ruled by our sin, you know, a slave to sin, as it further says in chapter six. And we have to die and be reborn. So when we are baptized, you know, being submerged into water, Symbolizes our death when you're submerged. It symbolizes our death to our sinful nature. And when we're raised out of that water and everybody's spitting and sputtering and there's snot hanging out of your nose. It symbolizes our resurrection to a new way of life. That we are we are not the same as we went into that water as when we come out. We we have to submit our lives to Jesus and become baptized, and we are no longer the master of our lives anymore. That's what that means. It's not just a a tradition or or the next step thing to do. It's it's the symbol of, I'm going to become more like Christ. I'm going to follow my king. Jesus has to be in control of your life. God has to become the focus of your life. If we look farther down in chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Because we know that Christ having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. You are now alive in Jesus. You will never be, again be ruled by death. God promises eternal life to, to all those that put their faith in him, right? John 3, 16. Jesus took the keys from death once and for all. He, he took them. He owns them. And so those of us who put our faith in him are under that reign. Amen? This all being said, uh, we see that we, we don't live under this set of rules that have to be followed in order to be forgiven. Forgiveness is the result of God's grace, as we've talked about now. So let's look again at verses 15 through 19. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God. Although you used to be slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. And having been liberated from sin, you become enslaved to righteousness. And I'm using human analogy because of the weakness of our flesh. For just as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to moral impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. See, before before we follow Jesus, um, we obey our own selfish desires. With the thought without the thought of of a creator of, of heavens and earth, or the creator of all things, without that thought even in our minds, we obey our own selfishness. And Paul is saying here that we, we gave into sinful desires, and most times our lives were directed by our sinful desires. So now you are to do the same thing, but give into God and what He wants for your life instead of the sinful desires. Instead of obeying our, our own passions and our own immoral acts, it's now to obey God. You know, I have, this, I have this favorite song, and I debated about singing it this morning. I'm not going to. Don't worry. It's not. But this favorite Christian artist of mine, it, it, the group's name is Lovekin. It's L-O-V-K-N. And he sings this song called New Life. And, and I'll read some of the lyrics. But some of the lyrics, they fit in really well today with... with um, not being a slave to our sins and becoming a slave to God. And the the lyrics go like this, I'm kicking off my old shoes, saying goodbye to my old blues, and I'm gonna tell all my friends about my new life. I'm kicking off my old shoes and saying goodbye to my old ties, telling my friends about my new life. And I don't care who you are, that's the gospel. Right? I was once one way, Jesus. Jesus. Now I am this way, a new way. Before becoming a, a pastor and before becoming a Christian, the best example I have of being a slave to sin and becoming a slave to God is, is our own testimonies in life. And so I wanted to share a little bit this morning with you about before becoming a Christian, I was uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol as a younger teenager and into my early 20s. And it was this crazy wild life of everything I did was, was circled around what I had to have or what I needed to do and, and praise God my, uh, I've been together with my wife since we were the age of 16 and we'll be married <laughs> 13 years tomorrow and she deserves an applause for that but um, <laughs> uh, this Christian woman who stuck around and it was always I think part of God's plan was always there but I had done it had been this, some trouble with, with the law at times in, in my early and my late teenage years And so sin ruled my life for a long time. We got married. We we had a son. And one day it led to I didn't want to be under this thing of sin anymore. And I would have argued with you back then that God wasn't real in any way I could see fit. God didn't exist. I'd never seen him in my life. There was no way. And so attempted suicide. And my brother found me and got me to a hospital. So praise God that I'm here to tell you that. Went to a rehab. And now while I'm in this rehab, I'm still not a believer at all, but I know that something has to change. I was a slave to this sin in my life, this destruction in my life. And so one night we're there, and, and my wife calls, and our son is two at the time, and doesn't speak more than a couple words at a time. And for the first time, I'm on a phone with him in a rehab center, and I hear him say, I love you, Dad. The first time I ever heard him say it. And it wrecked me. Right? Here I am being a slave to sin and my son needs me. God used my son to reveal his son to me. That night I I dropped the phone and I hit my knees and I screaming at the top of my lungs in my room in this rehab center, God, if you're real, you have to do something. You have to do this. I cannot do this. And I met Jesus that night. And since then, my life has turned upside down, completely different, and I will say it to anybody that my worst days now as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, my worst day now, I will take it over my best day before. Because I have Jesus. And Paul is saying here that we are, we are slaves to something in this life, whether it is our sinful desires or it is righteousness, we are slaves to something in this life. And I want to clarify here that slavery means that we are mastered by something, that we're ruled over by it that it is in, in control of you. So we need to stop being slaves to sin, which leads to death, to our eternal separation from God, and start and continue to be a slave to God, which leads to eternal life. And it's all about surrendering. It's all about surrendering and obeying God because of your faith in him and his promises. Jesus, They beat him, ripped his beard out, mocked him, spit at him, placed a crown of thorns on him and pressed it down into his skull. They whipped him so bad to the point that flesh would like hang off his body like ribbons. And then they put this purple robe on him and they marched him around to mock him some more and call him the king of the Jews. Jesus went through every single step of this, not just for the sacrifice that God had asked him to be, but he also did it out of Obedience. When we look at that cross up there, so many times we just often see this symbol of, of sacrifice. But we're missing it if that's all we see. Jesus in the garden before he was arrested, he cried out to the Father. He said, If there is any other way, let it be so. Please, if it's not too late, tell me now. And there was a pause. And Jesus said, I want your will to be done, God, not mine. I'll do what you have called me to do. So the cross becomes not just this symbol of sacrifice, but also this symbol of obedience to the Father. And brothers and sisters, I want to leave you here today with with something. Being a slave to God simply means being surrendered to him. It's to his guidance It's to his love. It's to his word. You understand what I'm saying? You see, in this life, if we're not under his guidance, his love, or his word, it is Satan's mission to to distract us in this life, which leads us to disobeying God's word. Adam and Eve, we talked about Adam last week. Simple distraction, and you're disobeying God. And if we're disobeying God or we're being distracted, it means we're not paying attention to what God's leading us to do in our lives. And to be honest, sometimes you you read through some scripture, um, and I think Satan obeys God's word better than we do at times. I know some of you are like, this guy's insane, what is he talking about? Just hear me out for a second. The Bible says that some time ago, Satan tried to become like God or disobeyed him and was cast out of heaven. He was an angel for eternity. And Satan learned that when God speaks truth, he means what he says, and there are consequences for disobeying him. And then we see a few years later um, something interesting in the book of Job, and I'm going to read some verses for you from the book of Job. It's chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him. A man perfect in integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. But then the Lord says something to Satan. He says, everything he owns is in your power now. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. And so Satan left the Lord's presence. That's how scripture goes. So you see, Satan wanted to mess with Job really bad. He wanted to mess him up personally as well. And and Satan says, well, you're protecting him, and so I can't touch him. And when God spoke to Satan, when God told him what he could and couldn't do, there wasn't an argument. He didn't argue back to God. Nothing in Scripture says that that Satan questioned him or argued anything with God. He took God for his word, and that was it. He knew that when God speaks, God means what he says, that his word is his breathed word. So why are we always questioning God and what his word says? We need to obey, obey in that exact order. We need to stop allowing Satan to creep into our lives. Stop questioning God's word because it doesn't fit our ideas about life. And some of us here today, we're tired of the church or we're tired of the Bible because it doesn't match our morals or our lifestyles or how we think we should live a life. Why should the church didn't write this book? The church was formed by it. If your life or your beliefs don't match what God's word says, then you, know, you get upset or leave the church or find that one agrees with you. Be a follower of Jesus. Be the follower that we all claim to be. Open our Bibles, learn to study it in context, and allow God himself to transform you to his likeness. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He lived the perfect life, righteous life. And if we say we are Christians, we have to realize that being a good person and going to heaven, it's not the point. It's not the point at all. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about his plan for salvation. It's about Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life of righteousness, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, Jesus' example for us. You see in the pattern what I'm saying here? It's all about Jesus. Being a Christian means you trust Jesus to obey who he says he is, that you are forgiven, that guilt, shame, and fear no longer exist in your heart the creator of the heavens and the earth, the king of the universe says, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. God says that. God says that we are free in Jesus Christ. We're to stop being slaves to our sins and let Jesus be the master of our lives. And if you want freedom, brothers and sisters, if you are yearning for real love, if you are yearning for real relationship, it is only found through Jesus. It is only truly felt and lived when Jesus is the master the Lord and the king of your life because of God not us because of God we get to experience his presence we get to experience his spirit and power most importantly we are slaves to God we get to show the world who Jesus is we get to show the world how to love others like Jesus and this is why we are here to, to live by God's word How can you show Jesus or the world who Jesus is if we don't know the word? The word that tells us who Jesus is. How do we live by God's word if we we don't read it? Or if we only open it when the pastor tells you to on a Sunday? I'll give you this advice. Pray first, then open your Bible and begin to become a student of God's word. And then pray some more, and then pray some more, and then pray some more and ask the Holy Spirit. Read, and then pray some more. And don't read the Bible to try and transform it into your version. But study the Bible and allow God to transform you into the likeness of His Son. I got one more thought this morning, I promise, and then I'm done. There was this study, this really cool study, and I know my wife Erica got really annoyed because I told it to her about five times. I just, It was this awesome story, and you're going to probably think it's lame, but it's awesome. So, In the 90s, there was a study with fleas, right? Fleas, okay. In the lab, they took a flea. Fleas are naturally born with this um, skill to have a 36-inch vertical. It's insane. 36-inch, yuck. Okay. I saw some people itching already. That's cool. So, 36-inch vertical. They took this flea, and they put it in a glass jar that was only five inches high. And after about two or three times of this flea hitting its head on the top of the jar... It learned to figure the distance out, and it would only jump five inches. It wouldn't hit its head anymore. Well, come to find out, this flea was, uh, was pregnant or a mom or however that works with fleas, and, and kids, ask your parents, and the, it had baby fleas in the jar. And so in the jar, these, these baby fleas, when they got to an age the where they could start jumping, they would jump, but they would only jump to five inches. They never hit their heads. Only Only five inches. And so after a, few, a little while goes, they, they pull the cap off the jar and they let it out. And the mom, flee 36 inches. And the babies, still five inches. What they were designed and their potential of 36 inches was cut short by the environment that they were in. The environment that they were brought up in or the environment that they had put themselves in. They could only go five inches, not the full potential of their 36-inch vertical. Our environment that we grow in or that we live in can and will hold us back from our potential. God's full potential for you is to be sold out for him. To be sold out for Jesus. To pick up your cross daily and actually follow him. Some of us in this room right now, we're putting ourselves in environments that hold us back from our potential in Christ. And this environment that we've created for ourselves keeps us from the full promises of God and the life that he has for us. All because we won't surrender. We hold on to little bits of our past lives, and we won't fully surrender to Him. We're living in the glass jar. Perhaps it's it's because we haven't fully felt the weight of our sin. In this day and age, um, sin is downplayed quite a bit. Sin isn't a bad decision. Or worse, we believe the lie that Satan tells us that. You feel that your your sin is too much weight. That perhaps you believe that the lie that your sin is too great, that you can't be forgiven. And I'm here to tell you that's a lie. It's a complete lie. God wants to forgive you. He offers his forgiveness through your faith in Jesus. And it's as simple as, as I've said a number of times now, surrender. I had a teenager one time, as I said, a youth pastor, a teenager asked me a few years ago, well, what about people who had never heard the gospel before? What about these people? And I'm pretty sure I gave them some really cool, awesome answer, and I used the word dude and fly and whatever else I used, 100 a lot. And I'm pretty sure it satisfied them, and I felt pretty satisfied about the answer that I gave him. But I've often thought about that, that question and how I answered it to him. It often, even right now as I'm speaking, it makes me think about the answer that I gave him. And sometimes I think, like, I should have said, well, what about you? What about each and every one of you in this room? By the sound of my voice, by the word that's in front of you, you have heard the gospel. What are you doing with it? Are you going to respond? Have you responded? Are you going to take, or are you going to take your chances? There was this rabbi one time that said, don't worry about accepting Jesus into your heart and being baptized. Don't worry about it at all. Don't worry about salvation. Give your life to Jesus the day before you die, and you'll be good. Just do that. Then the obvious question was, well, how do I know when I'm going to die? The rabbi smiled, and he says, you never know. You could die right now. Tragedies, disease, everything, people die every day from, from unexpected things. You could die going home. You could die later this evening. You could die this week. There's no way to tell when we're going to die. But the Bible says this, today is the day of salvation. If you're here, if you hear God's voice, don't ignore it. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day for you. Listen to God and listen to his voice and allow him to soften your heart and to allow you to give your life to Jesus